Good morning. I'm privileged to speak the Word of God to you again this morning. As we have been in the book of Matthew, we're going to start and be, we're going to start or continue in the book of Matthew today. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Matthew, we're in verse or chapter 6, and we're going to talk about a passage today that I speak on prayer. So I'm excited to go through this passage with you all today. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we're in verses 5 through 8. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And it says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who sees in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we come to this passage and seeking to investigate what is a prayer, or at least a heart of prayer, that pleases you. Father, for those of us who are believers here today, we pray, Father, that we indeed begin to grow in our prayer lives. Our prayer lives look different as a result of the studying of today's passage. And if we don't know you today, we pray that you would draw us to a knowledge of you so that we can begin to pray this way. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you're growing us and changing us and causing us to be more like Jesus every day, Lord, through the study of a word. And we thank you, Lord, for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Many traditions and many religions carry different forms of prayer. My family and I, we travel to Indonesia uh, pretty often, um, once, uh, at least once every two years. I mean, it's pretty often compared to you guys, I, I think, <laughs> just to visit family. And uh, I remember when I first went to Indonesia, I was surprised by how religious, at least how outwardly religious the environment is. I'm sleeping in my own room, I remember, and early in the morning, all of a sudden, I'm woken up by a prayer. I'm praying from a a really a a loud chant or a mantra coming from loudspeakers coming from an outside mosque that was just pretty close to our house. It happened around 4.30 or so, and uh, Indonesia, what they do is that typically they have um, prayers during regular times because it's a country that is composed of mostly Muslims. Muslims, according to um, Islamic law, are required to pray five times a day, and so they did so. And they will broadcast these prayers, these specific prayers, from the minarets of these mosques. If you ever live close to these mosques and uh, hear these prayers, they, these prayers are actually quite loud if you ever... Uh, were next to them, and in some instances, the volume of these prayers would extend three miles in radius. That's how loud they are. So I'm interested, and I was woken up by this prayer at 4.30 in the morning, just when the light is beginning to shone through the windows. I'm interested in finding out who is praying these prayers, and people are actually waking up to pray these prayers. I found out that Indonesia is actually quite a secular country, not that many people, even though on the outward they call themselves Muslims, they actually don't really practice a lot of Muslim traditions. and So most people are just ignoring these prayers 
early in the morning, also in the afternoon, also in the noontime. They're ignoring them. They're just living their day-to-day lives. And in fact, these prayers that prayed over and over again coming from the minarets, well, many of them are just recordings. The recordings are set to broadcast at certain times in a day. I remember thinking through these prayers and just thinking, you know what, like, these are just traditions, these are just rituals. God's not going to hear you pray. God's not going to hear prayers like these because ultimately these are just recordings. Like, what, what kind of God listens to recordings, right? So I think, you know what, I'm not going to pray like that. I don't pray with pre-recorded prayer and just kind of set them at certain times and be broadcast during the day and think that God's going to listen to that kind of a prayer. So I went back to sleep thinking, you know what, I have a relationship with God. I don't need to have this kind of prayer. I wake up about five hours later <laughs> with the day almost half gone or the morning almost half gone and gone through, gone through my day, go, up, go down the stairs and do the things I was supposed to do throughout the day. All of a sudden I remembered I didn't pray at all either in my day. As much as judged the Muslims for their ritualistic prayers, well, that day God didn't hear much from me either. And that's the reality. You see, these two kind of hard attitudes, which my hard attitude, if you're an unbeliever today, you will have this hard attitude in your life um, to the full extent, is that you don't need God. You're self-sufficient to live your day, do all the things that you needed to do without praying. You don't need the presence of God in your life. Or, if you're religious today, then you simply are reaching God through their own, your own religiosity, your own traditions, your own forms, of rituals. That's the two conditions that describe humanity today. Whether you think that you can live without God, you're sufficient in and of ourselves, or you're going to seek God through your own rituals. Now, both states are states of pride. Both states are states of pride. We're prideful if we think that we can live without God. That certainly is prideful, and that's abhorrent in God's eyes, because we need God. God is the one who created us. Now, if we think that we can reach God through some kind of ritual, through some kind of tradition, through some kind of chanting or incantations, or some kind of chanting of a mantra, going through some kind of religious motion, that is pride too. That's pride too because we're ignoring the fact that we're sinners in our hearts. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to reach a holy God. If we knew God to be as holy as He is, and certainly there's no religiosity that we or man can invent that can reach God. You see, what separates from God, separates us from God, isn't the method. What separates us from God is the fact that we're sinners. We're sinners before God. We're sinners in our actions. If not in our actions, we're sinners in our hearts. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this clearly. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. If you look in your heart today, whether you're really, really religious or if you're just coming here today because you stumbled in and you're not religious at all, you know that you're a sinner. You possess anger, you possess lust, hatred, bitterness in your heart at some point in your life. If you look at yourself honestly, you know that you deserve judgment because you're a sinner before God. If you know how God... Oh, how holy God is. And certainly you would know that you're separated from Him because of your sins. God, the Savior, however, desires us. He loves us. He wants us with Him. So He came to fix this 
fundamental problem that separates us from Him, which is sin. It's not the method, but it's sin. Our human heart, our sinfulness, our sinful thoughts, sinful actions that separates us from Him. God is holy, but in order to bridge us and Himself, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to earth, who lived a perfect life, and to give that perfect life to us in order to save us. See, God desires a genuine relationship. Not just some kind of rituals, not some kind of tradition, not some kind of incantations or some kind of mantra. No, that does not satisfy God. God wants a genuine relationship, so therefore He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to earth to secure that genuine relationship. If we believe unto Him, that is, we believe that Jesus Christ came down the cross to save us from our sins, to give us everlasting life, to pay for the penalty of our sins, and He gave His perfect life to us so that we may, we may be with Him. Not only so, if we believe that He also rose from the dead so that we can live forever with Him because he should, He's showing us that death has no hold of Him and that if we believe, we shall certainly be with Him. If we believe this, then we're restored unto the Lord. We're restored unto the Lord with a perfect and a genuine relationship. See, the Spirit of God, for those of us who believe unto Him, the Spirit of God works in our lives to witness to us that we are God's children. If you're a believer today, you know that you have a relationship with God. You know that because the Spirit of God is working within you to tell you that truth. You can cry out to God as your Abba Father because He is the most important person in your life. That is what the Spirit of God does in your heart. You have a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through believing unto Him and through the Holy Spirit who is at work in your life. So in this passage in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8, we're going to see that God's calling us to live in a genuine relationship. Not a fake relationship, not through traditions, not through rituals, but a genuine one. In a genuine relationship, we're going to pray. We're going to pray not as hypocrites do, not some kind of traditional prayer, some kind of thing that man made up, but it's a prayer that is actually coming from the depth of our heart. We want to cry out to God. We want to pray to Him. We want to have a relationship with Him through prayer. That is the characteristic of a true believer in Christ. And today we're going to see in this world that people either don't care about God, they don't reach out to Him at all, or people seeking to reach God through some kind of ritual or repetitive motions, but all these efforts are going to fail to reach God because, as I said, there's a problem of sin in our lives. That sin must be dealt with in order to have a genuine relationship with God. Jesus Christ dealt with that sin, dealt with that problem for us. So today, if we believe unto Jesus and trust in Him as your Savior, as your Lord, then God's going to save you and He's going to give you a genuine love for him as the Spirit of God is at work in your life. So here in Matthew chapter 6, verse through 5, we're going to see what Jesus is teaching us, what does it mean to genuinely pray as a believer in Christ. How does a genuine believer pray? First, we're going to see that a genuine believer prays for God and God alone. A genuine believer prays to please God a genuine believer prays to be seen by God and not by others. God and God alone is who he desires or who she desires to please. 
Let's read here from verse 5 through 6. Verse 5. It says this. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here in the section of Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is discussing the issue of prayer. There are many people who live in the traditions and their own religiosity, people who don't have a true relationship with God, but they have religion. So what they do is that they pray, but they pray with different motivations. The first motivation of false prayer that Jesus mentioned here is that they pray to be seen by others. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're praying to be seen. They're praying to please other people, to be seen as how holy they are. True believers, however, pray for God's eyes and God's eyes alone. So to give a context of what Jesus is doing here, he's preaching the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount, which he is teaching to all people that he is the source of salvation for all. He's the Savior of the world. He's calling to all people to admit that they're sinners. If they admit that they're sinners and repent of their sins and believe unto Jesus Christ as their Savior, then what's going to happen for them is that Jesus is going to fulfill all righteousness and give his righteousness to them. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says this clearly. He says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. By fulfilling the law, he's fulfilling all righteousness so that you and I may be given that righteousness if we believe unto him as our Lord and Savior. However, at Jesus' preaching concerning himself, that he is the Lord, he is the Savior, that came to save all mankind from their sins, he's actually running into a hard hearts. The Pharisees and the scribes, what they're doing is that they have all invented their own religious system already. They didn't think that they needed Jesus. They thought that they're good enough already in and of themselves. They invented all kinds of traditions, all kinds of religions, religious uh, actions, systems, in which they think that they only do these things, they shall be righteous. And we learned through, as we studied through the Sermon on the Mount in the last month and a half, what they did is they invented these systems such as you should not kill, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, thinking that these are just external acts. If you did not externally murder someone, if you did not commit adultery with another person, break a marriage vow, then you're righteous and therefore God should see you as righteous. You're a pretty good person. So in our culture, it would seem as if we would have a common phrase, don't drink, don't smoke, and don't hang out with those who do. If you are these things, you are what? A good Christian. Right? You're a good Christian if you don't drink and don't smoke and don't hang out with those who do. Jesus looks at the outward behavior and the standard and says, hey, your standard is too low. Your standard is way too low. It doesn't govern the heart. You just govern the externals. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 48, as we study through this, Jesus began to call out on the hypocrisy, saying that if you're just looking at your external actions, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're just living as a bunch of hypocrites because your inward hearts are still wicked. All of you, not just the Pharisees, but all of us too, our inward hearts are wicked. It's wicked in this way. So the Pharisees taught that murder is external act. We're going to do some review. Jesus says, if you're angry, if you're angry at someone unrighteously, you have committed, committed murder in the heart, in God's eyes. The Pharisees taught adultery is wrong. Don't break a marriage vow. Don't sleep with someone outside your marriage. Uh, 
marriage. Jesus says, if you ever looked at a woman, if you ever looked at a woman with lustful eyes, then you have committed adultery in the heart. Not only did the Pharisees live as hypocrites in what they did not do, which are these laws, don't do and don't do, commandments of what they did not do, and they thought if they didn't do these things, they should be righteous. They were also hypocrites in what they did do. So last week, what we saw, what they did do, they were giving to the poor. They were practicing almsgiving. What they did do, they thought they were righteous by giving to the poor. However, Jesus is continuing to call them out that they're hypocrites because they're giving out of a hard attitude to please men, not to please God. Jesus calls them out, saying, you're practicing deeds in order so that other people will respect you. They're giving to the poor so that they may be seen. They're motivated by the honor and respect of men. If they're motivated by the honor and respect of men in their relationship with God, in their external actions, in their deeds of righteousness, that goes to show that they are actually not doing it for God, but they were doing it for others to see. They were hypocrites. Jesus is calling out their hypocrisy, saying that you are sinful on the inside. If you're sinful on the inside, therefore, you're not perfect. You deserve hell. You deserve judgment. The requirement of perfection is this. Jesus says this clearly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the requirement. You must be completely perfect. The reality is that nobody else is. Neither you and I are. No one is. So therefore, that's why we need Jesus Christ to be our perfection. We can only have the righteousness of Christ through believing unto Him. So in Matthew chapter 6 here in this passage, as we did some review, here in verse 5 through 8, Jesus is continually calling out on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He exposes them on the hypocrisy of prayer, of their religious prayer, their religious actions. We see this in verse 5 when Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners so that they may be seen by others. So we learned last week that hypocrite, the word hypocrite actually comes from the word Hippocrates, which means actor or stage actor. It's actually not really an insult. We just made it to be an insult in our vocabulary, in our Western vocabulary. But if you work as an actor today, you are a Hippocrates. Okay, it's not an insult, just just what the word means. But for the Pharisees, they were acting all the time. In the religious setting, they were acting all the time. And the stages are set to be the synagogues and the streets. They were acting in a sense that they were praying to be seen by others. They were praying in the two locations, in the synagogues and the street corners. Now some may say, as you hear read in verse 5, they were standing when they were praying. Some may say, you know what, that maybe that's what the problem is. They were standing when they are praying. Well, that's actually not the problem. Some people say, well, maybe they should have been prostrating or kneeling down. Well, in the Old Testament, actually plenty of people were standing up when they prayed. So to go, you know, give you a little review of how people pray in the Old Testament, there were actually various postures, and all these postures were accepted by God. Daniel was kneeling down when he was praying. That was in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. He knelt down three times a day before the Lord and prayed. His prayers were accepted before God. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, was standing up while she prayed. This is in 1 Samuel Chapter 1, verse 26, and the Lord actually heard her as well. David sat down before the Lord and prayed. 
This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. In Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, David was lying down on his bed while he was praying. So we, you and I might have prayed in all its postures. It's acceptable before God. Moses, another posture, prayed while he was falling prostrate. Namely, his face, his body was on the ground. This was in Numbers 22, verse 16. See, in all cases, we can see that people were praying in different postures. And all these postures of prayers were accepted by God. You can sit down, you can kneel, you can stand up, you can posture yourself. It really isn't the key as opposed to what kind of posture you ought to take. But what God is saying is that what kind of heart attitude, that's what matters. What is your heart attitude? That is what matters. And that is what Jesus is saying here in verse 5 to verse 8. What motivates you? The Pharisees were motivated to be seen. And that is evil in Jesus' eyes. How were they seen? Let's look at verse 5. They were praying in the synagogues and on the streets. First, the synagogues. Now, the synagogues is a very common place to pray. It's kind of like a church. What goes on in the synagogue is that you have a time where people will open the scroll, where they read a passage in the Word of God. They will have time where a rabbi will come and preach the Word. They will also have some time of corporate prayers. Kind of like what we do here in our church, a, a rabbi would stand up in front and lead a corporate prayer as a pastor would do here in a church and lead you all in a prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. However, the key here, what you see in verse 5 is a second sentence, where they loved it. They loved to stand in the synagogues and pray. Jesus is saying that they loved specifically to pray in the setting of in front of people. Now, these Pharisees and rabbis, they're leaders, the spiritual leaders. They don't really pray in and of themselves. They, they don't pray in secret, but they love to stand in front of others and sound eloquent and sound beautiful, sound well-constructed in their prayers so that others will see how holy, how godly they are. They're advancing their own agenda in that religious setting. Another place they love to pray was on the streets. Now, last week we saw almsgiving. And what happened in the almsgiving was that people would give on the streets, if you remember. They give on the streets, and the streets we talked about, if you ever walk on some of these streets in Jerusalem, they were narrow streets. The reason why they were narrow is because you kind of create this kind of traffic jam. You say, almsgiving, almsgiving, and the poor and the lame and the blind will come, and they'll kind of crowd the streets, and you give to the poor. As you give to the poor, you kind of create this traffic, and all of a sudden people have to get around this traffic, but as they get around this traffic, they can see how generous you are, how wonderful you are, how godly you are for giving. You advance your own agenda. The word used for street in verse 2 for almsgiving is word roommate. That's the word for narrow street. Amazingly, in verse 5, the word for street in the Greek that Jesus used is not the same word. It's the same word in English, but it's not the same word in the Greek. The word here in verse 5 is word platea. It's a word for broad street, a wide street. And so what the Pharisees were doing is that they were giving specifically almsgiving on narrow streets, but when they're praying in front of other people, they will pray on the broad streets. Not on the broad streets only, on the corners of the broad streets. So that everybody who hears them, because they will pray out loud, they'll pray the Shema, 
Pray out loud. The Lord God, the Lord's one. They pray out loud. Everyone can, see, can hear them. They'll pray at certain times during the day. And that will gather attention unto themselves. And people will say, wow, that's a godly person, godly man for praying such prayer. They were actors. They were actors in front of others. They were praying just for honor and respect from men. When they pray in such a way, Jesus says here in verse 5, they should expect that they will have no reward from God. No answer from God, even though they think that they pray to God, no answer from Him. They have all received the reward. The reward is the applauses of men. That's what Jesus says. They have received their reward here in verse 5. They're praying for other people to see. So other people see, they give them applauses. That's all they're going to get. Even though they ask all these things in their prayers, if they praise God, even though they honor God in their prayers, God's not going to hear them. They've been fully rewarded, fully received. They received everything they'll get in their prayers. Believers, however, true believers, here in verse 6, pray differently. When they pray, they go into the inner chamber, their room, their inner closet, some of your translations say. And what that is, is really a room where you store your most valuable treasures. Maybe your bedroom, maybe your inner storeroom. But you, not ever, you will never ever take a stranger to a place where you store your earrings and whatever. Show, oh, here's where I store all my treasures. No, right? You wouldn't do that because you don't want everybody to know what you have. That would be foolish of you. But Jesus says here, when you pray, pray in that room. Pray in secret. Pray in such a way that nobody knows that you're doing it. And the value of secrecy does not lie in secrecy itself. There's nothing valuable about being secret. But rather, when you pray in secret, you're demonstrating that you're praying for God and God alone. That is what's valuable. You're giving evidence. You're demonstrating that you care about what God thinks of you and that your prayer is not generated from honor and respect which you would get from other people who see you pray. So you love the love, you love the Lord alone, and that is the virtue of praying secrecy. And God who looks at your prayer and sees that you're praying in secret and knows that you love him, the purity of your heart answers your prayer according to his will. He rewards you according to his will. Now Jesus here is teaching us to pray to God and God alone. He's not forbidding us to pray in public. He's not saying that we shouldn't pray as a church together because we should. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says this. When the church comes together, they fellowship, they break bread together, and they what? They pray. They pray. So we should be praying together. The question that we ask ourselves is this. Are we putting the same amount of energy in our personal private prayers as when we do, when we're praying public, when we're praying with other people. Now, I said to myself as a pastor, I said, you know what, I, I struggle with this. I do. I don't know if you do. I certainly struggle with this. I think I spend more energy praying in public than I would do in my own self. I pay more attention to what I'm saying. I want to make sure what I'm saying makes sense, so I spend more energy. While I'm praying by myself, I just kind of mumble, mumble, mumble. I don't know if you do that. Because you're so busy in your life, you wake up in the morning, it's like, I gotta get to work. I only have five minutes to pray. I gotta brush my teeth, eat my breakfast. So you mumble, 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 blah, 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 blah. And even, I don't, I don't even know God understands. He, he, he does because He sees your heart, but, but you don't put the effort in. 
You're lazy. I'm lazy. I don't wait. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm busy. Too busy for God. But with others, I'm not. When there's presence of others. This week, I give you an example. My kids are struggling with stomach virus and having stomach issues. So I'm praying for them. And I wake up in the morning, I pray, but, you know, I struggle like you, you do. You know, I'm 5.30 in the morning. And some of you wake up earlier, like 5.30, and I want to sleep 10 more minutes. Then it's 5.40. And it's like, okay, all of a sudden I only have so much time to pray, 30 minutes or 20 minutes to pray. And then, so I have the list of prayers I go through, and one of them is to pray for the, my kid's health. So I got to that prayer list, and I'm you know, thinking about, okay, I, I'm praying for my kid's health. I said, God, please help them go through stomach bug. In Jesus' name, amen. Praying that. I, I hit the list, I'm, I'm done. But that's, that's the extent of my prayer. I, I was like, you know, God, you're going to take care of them. But that same day when my wife calls me and says, you know what, I'm really, really struggling. The kids are still having issues with their stomach bug and their tummy, and my wife's getting a little bit sick herself. It's like, okay, let's pray. I'm praying with her. All of a sudden, I've energy and excitement, and I'm waxing eloquent. God, give my wife strength, give my wife energy, take the virus out of my kid's stomach, give me energy. I pray that Sophia will be able to go back to school, not miss a class eloquently saying all these things. I'm energized when I'm praying with others. But I'm not when I'm praying with God alone. Hmm. What does it say about you? What does it say about me? It says one thing. It says that we don't know how to sit in the presence of God. It says that we're too busy for God we're too busy for God. We don't want to spend the time to construct the words for God to hear. We're lazy. But God deserves all, does He not? He deserves all. It shouldn't matter whether we're praying in the presence of others or praying to God and God alone. He deserves all. Our every fiber, our every energy, our every sweat in prayer shouldn't be too busy for him. God gave us all of himself. Jesus came and lived a life in which he gave us all of himself. He wasn't too busy for us. He lived a life in which he gave his perfect righteousness to us and then he died on the cross for our sins. He, he gave himself for us. So in light of what he did to us to restore us unto himself and the great sacrifice he made for us, let us today pray to the Lord for him and him alone with the same energy, with the same enthusiasm, same excitement that we would do in front of others, perhaps even more so because the presence of the Lord is there. See, we're called to respond to God as he had given to us. We're called to offer the sacrifices of prayers in such a way to reflect how much that he has loved us. So let's choose to spend the time to give to the Lord our attention and our focus. As we do so, we are actually allowing the cries coming from the depth of our heart to be taken to the throne room of God. We're allowing the, the, the very words, the genuine words that come from our hearts to be on the throne room of God. And this leads us to our next point. First, we saw that Jesus is calling us to pray to him with a heart that is genuine 
And those who genuinely pray are going to pray in the same way, whether you're in front of others or in front of God alone. But second, we're going to see this. Those who genuinely pray, who have a genuine relationship with God, but genuinely pray to Him, are going to pray with heartfelt words, true words, heartfelt words, and not just empty phrases. Let's see this. Verse 7 and 8. Verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So as Jesus teaches on prayer, again, He's teaching the Pharisees, or including the Pharisees, but to the crowd, that those who don't have a relationship with God, they, as we saw, pray with just to be seen. But another characteristic, those who don't have a relationship with God, they pray with vain repetitions. They hear what we see is that they pray with empty phrases. True believers, however, pray with genuine, genuine meaning coming from their hearts. So let's study a little bit how the Jews pray. The Jews in the days of Jesus, they prayed regularly. They did. They prayed regularly. They prayed three times a day. That is the tradition of those days. That tradition came from Ezra in the second temple period and it lasted all the way to 70 AD when the Jewish temple was destroyed. The first prayer is the morning prayer. It's called the Shakrit. The Shakrit occurs early in the morning. It's the first prayer that you pray throughout the day. According to the Jewish tradition, you pray this prayer when the sun just came up. How up? You say, well, when you're able to, what the Jewish law says, when you're able to recognize someone you know about six feet away. There's enough light for you to recognize someone about six feet away or when you can tell the difference between blue and green. Enough light for you to tell. When you can see with that enough light, pray this prayer or pray this time. Another prayer called the Minka, that's the afternoon prayer. You pray this prayer in the afternoon. And then the third prayer is the Mariv. You pray this prayer at nighttime, after sunset. So what do they pray? They pray three times a day, but what do they pray? They pray formulated prayers, pre-written, pre-scribed prayers, which they recite. Today, the Jews, if you are, have Jewish friends, you know that when they pray, they have this little book open. It's called the Siddur. The Siddur is a prayer book. They open it up, they pray what's in the book. Now, in the days of Jesus, they also recited prayers, and these prayers are now written in the Siddur. And the Siddur contain prayers such as the Shema Israel, which is the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Lord God is one. Uh, Lord our God, the Lord God is one. It's a prayer that just really recites Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. So you have that, the Shema. And what the Jews also pray in those days, they pray what they call the Shemine Ezra. The Shemini Ezra means 18, so 18 blessings. 18 blessings to pray. So the first prayer, called Evolt, praises God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The second prayer, called the Gebrot, praises God for his power and might. And the third prayer, called the Kedushat Hashem, is a prayer of praising God for his holiness. So to give you an example of what the Jews did, and these are all written down already, they just recite them. A portion of the Gebrot, Praise like this or reads like this. You, O Lord, are mighty forever. You are the reviver of the dead. You are greatly to be able to save. You sustain the living in kindness. Revive the dead with great compassion. You support the falling, heal the sick, set free the bound, keep faith with those who sleep in the dust. 
What's the sound? Sounds great. Sounds great. These are really pretty awesome prayers. Spend a lot of time writing them. There really is nothing wrong with praying of, with, with help with some kind of formula or some kind of a pre-written, formulate, formulated prayer. Sometimes in my own life, I pick up a prayer book too and just kind of read through it. Because my thoughts are rambling, I'm just picking up a book and I just kind of allow some pre-written prayers to guide my own thoughts. There's nothing wrong with that. However, the problem comes when Jesus says in verse 7, you begin to allow these pre-formulated prayers to become empty phrases, meaning that you no longer mean them. You're just kind of reciting them over and over again like a formula, like an incantation. As you imagine. So kind of imagine with me what the Jews are going with in their day, what they're doing is that they have to pray three times a day. So wake up in the morning like you and I do. Sometimes you wake up a little bit later and you're just, you got to get to work. So you have a prayer, you got to say, you got to say the Shema, and you got to say the Shemini Israel. These are long prayers. Shemini Israel, there's 18 of them. They're shorter version, but still, this is quite long. You got you to gotta do them all. So you got to brush your teeth, you know, or whatever they did back then. Eat your breakfast. So you quickly say these prayers, you know, and then you go and get your work done. So you can go to work or get your preparation done. So go to work. You go to work. Afternoon comes. You're talking with a customer. Bing, bing, bing. Oh, time to prayer comes again. You got to pray again. So you got to say the Shema and the Shema Ezra again. You, you say it. Go back to talk to your customer. And nighttime comes. You're already tired. So you say it again. Recite it again. You don't mean it. You're hardly comprehending what you're saying. But you're just practicing it out of your religiosity. Jesus says here, if you pray in such a way, just going through the motions, being repetitive in your prayers is as good as if you didn't pray. Nah, God doesn't hear you. You're just empty phrases. You're just heaping up empty phrases. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 7. The word empty phrases, but the legel. Legel is the word lagos, coming from the word, really means word. Bata legel means empty phrases. Bata is a literary form that uses onomatopoeia, which really is a word that sounds like what it's supposed to mean. So like buzz with a B, B that buzzes, bzzz. Well, bata is the same thing, where bata, 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 bata. It just sounds like mumbling. Bata logel, a bunch of words that are batas. You're not meaning anything, it's just what you mumble underneath your breath. That's the practice of the Gentiles. Just going through it. If you go to a Buddhist temple today, you're going to see the same kind of prayer when they hum and mom under the breath chant a mantra and hit a gong. Doom. But they have no idea. They don't know fully what they're saying. They're just saying it because they have to. They're as a monk. God, however, when he looks at a prayer, what he says here in this passage, he's looking at your heart. He doesn't care about what you say as much as what is in your heart. If your heart really matches what you say, every word of your heart should match what is coming, every word that's coming from you should match what your heart is. Why? Verse 8, your Father in heaven already knows what's in your heart. Your Father in heaven already knows your heart. God's looking at your heart. He's assessing you. And He's not playing a devil's advocate, waiting for you to say something. No, He wants you to say it. He wants you to say it so that you would know that how much He loves you. And as you pray in such a way, and as he hears what you say, then he can respond to you in such a way to let you know that he's hearing your prayers. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants that interaction with you. But he already knows what's in your heart. 
So if you ask him out of a genuine heart, he will respond, he will reward you. That's what he's looking after. He's not a vending machine. He's not a vending machine. He's a real person. So Jesus here commands us not to pray like the hypocrites, not to pray simply because you're bound by some external act, not to pray because you're bound by some kind of religion, but pray from your heart. Now, I saw religion. Personally, with my eyes, when I went to Israel, and I prayed next to the Wailing Wall. If you know what the Wailing Wall is, it's the last portion of the Temple Mount that wasn't destroyed in 70 AD. It's really the wall of the, of the outer courtyard. And so the Orthodox Jews today, if you, you don't see many of them here, but if you go to New York, you'll see many of them. If you go to Israel, you'll see plenty of them. They wear the kippah, the red or, or the black hat, or a black suit, and they will pray with the siddur, the book open, they will recite it, and they will go back and forth like this, next to the wall. They will just pray, work himself up in a frenzy. I approach the wall. And the wall is a sacred site of prayer for Jews and for Christians many Christians, but really it's a touristy spot now, if you think about it. What people would do is that they would write a little prayer on a piece of paper and it would stick into the crevice of the wall. These are a tradition. I guess people think that if they write on a piece of paper sticking to the crevice of the wall, God's going to hear them. So, but however many times people don't come prepared with a piece of paper, so you see all kinds of paper there in the wall. You see binder paper, you see color paper, you see bubblegum wrap paper. On the wall, literally. No, seriously. People write on the bubblegum wrap and it's sticking to the wall. Of course, the wall can only hold so much paper, right? So when I go there, you stick a paper on the wall, another prayer falls down. <laughs> Your prayer is in the wall, but other people's prayer falls down from the crevice. And then every day, people come and they sweep up these prayers. <laughs> it disposes of them. What are you going to do? You can't just have them laying on the ground. But that's what they do. So I went there, I was like, you know what, I'm going to participate. I'm going to participate, I'm going to write something on a piece of paper I stick into the wall. But the moment I did that, I felt the Spirit of God spoke to me. I felt like a hypocrite. I felt like a hypocrite because that is not what my relationship to God really is. I don't need to stick a paper into a wall for God to hear me. This is hypocritical for me to do that. I don't need to do that. God hears my prayers because Jesus is my mediator, not a wall. A wall is not my mediator. Jesus is. This is just some kind of tradition, some kind of touristy thing to do. I already know my spirituality with Christ. I was participating in a superstition if I was to stick into a wall. See, Jesus hears our prayers no matter where we pray. It's not the words you pray either. It's not how many words you say. But it's your heart attitude behind the prayer. He hears us because He is our mediator. He already restored our relationship to God through dying for us on the cross, through paying for the penalty of our sins, through giving His righteousness to us. He is our true mediator. And today we get to approach God knowing that every prayer that we pray to God is heard by God. We get a crowd to God as Abba, Father. In Romans 8, chapter 34, Jesus says that he also intercedes for us on behalf to the Father on behalf of us. Every prayer we make, even though they're imperfect, Jesus actually takes them, he transforms them, and he presents them to God. And God answers us according to his perfect will. That's how beautiful our 
mediator is. He hears us as we pray. He will hear your words as long as coming from the depth of your heart. So today, today we know that if we pray in the name of Christ, we're heard by God. In prayer, that is today, if we are convicted, let's do give our time, our God, our time, our focus, our attention, and to speak to Him genuinely as He is a person that's in front of us. Not just a ritual that we do from day to day, but He is hearing you. Sometimes actually voicing out your prayers will help that. Don't just think about it. Actually voice it out. Actually say it with your mouth. Help you straighten out your thoughts. Help you help you actually construct real and real words. Articulate your thoughts to God. Now, if you don't know what you want to say, then you can be in the presence of God and just say, God, I don't know what to say, but I want to sit in your presence until I know what to say. In all cases, the key is that you're depending on God and you're using that time not just to rush through it. Right? It's not just a tradition, a ritual that you rush through, but you're choosing to spend the time with the Lord. That's the key. So now, as you're choosing to voice out your words and articulate clear words to the Lord, meaningful words, what you're going to find is that sometimes when you can't even bear to pray for five minutes, because like, you know what, i got to get going. Now if you do spend the time, you're going to find out that even 10, 15, 30 minutes of prayer is not enough for you to say everything you wanted to say to God if you do express to God clear words. That's the reality. That's the truth. One thought is going to lead to another, and you're going to continue to pray and continue to enjoy speaking to Him. In all this, I encourage you too also to keep a prayer journal. Write it down. Write it down. I use a prayer journal to help me. I use it on my phone. It's not an elaborate thing. I just write down things I go through the day, things I want to be praying for, because if I don't write it down, I'm going to forget. The busyness of the day gets to me, and all of a sudden I'm like, okay, well, what, what happened today? I, I don't even know. And I just end up not having, not having a real conversation with the Lord on so many details of my life which I should be having. So lastly, so yes, pray, keep a prayer journal if you can. Lastly, if you're choosing to spend the time to pray, if you're convicted, okay, I'm going to spend the time to pray, then make the time to pray. What do I mean? We live in a world where prayer is not a productive thing for us to do in our own minds sometimes. Because we just want to get about our day, want to be busy with the things that we think we can change. However, the reality is that we really can't change much. God's the one who can make changes in our lives. He's the one who can truly make a difference. Prayer is the most productive thing because God is the one who's going to do it for you. If you pray to Him, He will answer you. But you must make the time. Martin Luther himself said, I have so much to do today, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. That's what he said. If you have a lot of things to do, the kids wake up in the morning, all of a sudden there's no, no time to pray because they're crying out. Or you got to go to work and you have all this preparations that you have to do before you go to work, before you leave the home, then choose to wake up earlier. Yes? Wake up earlier. Wake up at 5. Wake up at 5.30. Wake up at 4.30. Do your prayers. Do your devotions. I'm being very practical with you, okay? This is no longer just from the 
exposition. This is being practical. Wake up earlier. Pray. See, in the, I choose to pray in the morning because when I wake up in the morning, the Spirit of God speaks to me. He does. I'm sensitive. When I'm, throughout the day, I'm just bombarded, right, by people's requests and different things that come up to me, different things that begin to affect my heart. But in the morning, and I forget what I want to tell the Lord, but in the morning when there's nothing around, when it's quiet, when it's just you and the Lord, you're sensitive. The Spirit of God speaks to you. So use that time to pray. Okay? And ultimately, when you pray in this way, when you pray in this way, when you choose to spend time in the Lord, what you're going to find is that you're going to live a godlier and godlier life throughout the day. That's going to be a reality. You're going to live a godlier and godlier life. The Spirit of God works in you through your prayers to build in you the fruit of the Spirit of God, which are love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Build these things into you. And as you live in this way, your fellowship with one another, our fellowship with one another here in the body of Christ is going to be even sweeter because we're going to sin less against one another, right? going to be more patient, more kind to one another. We're going to enjoy our presence with each other more. So your personal prayer is going to affect our fellowship with one another here in the body of Christ. And those who are outside of our church, they watch us and watch you as an individual. How can a sinner like you and like me behave in such a way in which we're always kind, always patient, always peaceful, always loving? We tell them that it's not because we have morals. No. You see, you're only as godly as if you prayed that morning. Amen? Amen. Your godliness is entirely dependent upon if you have the Spirit of God filling you. If you don't have the Spirit of God filling you, you may be a 30-year-old Christian. You could still be an ungodly Christian that day. You will. But if the Spirit of God fills your heart, then you will live by the Spirit. By the Spirit, even as a brand new believer, you will live in patience, joy, peace. And other believers or other non-Christians or unbelievers watch you. They're wondering how you can live in such a life. Why is there such a big, tremendous change in your life? Even as you just recently believed, you will say, it's because the Spirit of God fills me through my daily disciplines of prayer. And if you cry out to God, in prayers, believing unto Jesus Christ, He will also open the door for you. You may have Him as your Lord and Savior. God is calling us to live for Him from a genuine heart. Those who possess a genuine relationship with God are going to pray for God's eyes and God's alone. And those who possess a genuine relationship with God are going to pray with meaningful words coming from the heart. That's you today. If you have a genuine relationship with God, you should pray in such a way. Now, different cultures and different religions, as we spoke, carry different forms of prayer. In the Catholic religion, they use a rosary. The rosary are beads, if you've ever seen them, that are somehow brought over from the East. The Buddhist monk had been using beads for a long time and somehow is brought over from the East in the, I believe in the 13th, 13th century, and the Catholics started using them. It was implemented in the Catholic form of prayer. Each bead passed through 
your hand, you say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, Holy, Holy Mary, Mother God. It just continues on and on as you just pass them through. That's how they pray. That's their form of prayer. The Buddhist monks pray and meditate. They chant mantras. They hit the gong at certain times. For Muslims, if you go to certain conservative countries, what you're going to see is that they have to drop to the floor and pray at certain times of the day, five times a day, when they hear the prayers coming from the minarets. In those cases, you must perform these prayers perfectly to the external of these prayers in order for your prayers to be accepted by God. However, for those of us who have a genuine relationship with God, which is us through Jesus Christ, we know that God hears our prayers, not because we perform externals, but because our hearts are transformed by Him. We have Christ in our hearts. Our hearts belong to Jesus. Jesus has bought us, purchased us, and made us His own. So God hears us because we're His children. So today we don't have to toss God crumbs or bone through our external actions of prayers, but we can give it all. Pray to Him from words generated from your truest desires because Jesus desires to hear from you. He died for you. He will hear from you. See, now we submit to the Holy Spirit in our lives in prayer. Pray to God in every big and every small detail. Prayer for a Christian is like breathing. Prayer lifts us up to the throne room of God. We get to be in the presence of God. And that's what we all want to be as a Christian. In fact, that's where we will forever be in eternity. Let's go to the prayer room today. Let's go to prayer to the Lord right now. Our Father, we thank you for this time of just studying through your prayer and just really investigating our hearts, whether we have a genuine heart before you or not in our prayer. I pray, Father, that if any one of us have some kind of facade or externals in our prayers, that you would take it away. And let us know, Lord, that you care more about just externals, but you want who we are. So, Lord, whether our words are few, whether our words are many, it really doesn't matter. May it come from our hearts today. May we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to know that we're heard because of him who saved us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.